Step into the realm of wellness with the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. In this installment, we will engage in an open and genuine discussion about one woman's shame at her cervical cancer diagnosis. Also, AI is advancing healthcare and even in the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. You want to hear this. Dr. Tommy Mitchell and I review a study about how you can simply salvage your memory as you age. Plus, how do you recognize caregiver stress? We continue to talk dollars and cents with finance and wellness tips for 2024. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast kicks off now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You would think if you're diagnosed with cancer, your emotion would be shock and, and fear and, you know, next steps and what can I do? But my next guest experienced an emotion that is kind of unlikely to go along with a diagnosis of cancer. Human papillomavirus is highly prevalent with eight out of 10 individuals experiencing it at least once in their lifetime. But some women actually get a cancer diagnosis from this. A common mode of transmission of the human papillomavirus virus occurs through sexual contact. Joining me on the line to talk about this and to talk about an article that I read in Chatelaine magazine is Andrea Kerr. Good evening, Andrea. Hi, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Thank you so much for joining the program tonight. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm a bit under the weather, but I'm happy to chat. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, it's it's okay. Part of the winter winter time, so it certainly is. I think people forget that COVID and flu and all those nasty viruses are all out there. Um, mm-hmm. That was a very compelling and profound, and I mean, quite honestly, honorable article uh, that you were interviewed for in Chatelaine magazine, um, talking about your recent cervical cancer diagnosis after a routine pap test came back with abnormal results. You were age 35. Uh, One might, you know, feel shock uh, at this diagnosis, upset, fear. You experienced that and more. Tell me about that when you got that diagnosis. Yeah, that's right. Um, I actually wrote the article for Chatelaine um, about my experience and about the experience of, of many other women that get this diagnosis. Um, I was very afraid. I, I was, you know, when you hear that word, I was worried I was going to die, that maybe the cancer had spread. Um, I was afraid that maybe I would need a hysterectomy, um, which is one of the treatments for cervical cancer, and then I wouldn't be able to have children. Um, but I also experienced shame. Um, and I know that's, that's an emotion that most people wouldn't necessarily tie to a cancer diagnosis. Um, but through the process of being diagnosed, I found out that cervical cancer is almost always caused by HPV, human papillomavirus. Um, it is a sexually transmitted infection, and having more sexual partners can increase your risk of contracting HPV, even if you use a condom. Um, so I felt a lot of shame because I thought that I had caused my cancer by being too promiscuous, and I thought that it was, you know, I was being punished for it. Uh, I mean, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. It it's, must have been just, you know, put it, adding fuel to the fire um, to feel like you were at fault, to feel guilty, to feel like you perhaps could have done something about this. HPV is a very common virus. I know that. Most women or people will clear the virus 
um, on their own without even knowing that they have had it. Um, mm-hmm. But other people are not that fortunate and it can go on to a uh, diagnosis of cervical cancer or other types of cancer as well, head neck cancers and throat cancers, penile cancer. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you decide to share your story? Yeah, I mean, there were two reasons. Uh, the first was I had spoken with my therapist about the diagnosis. Um, I'd also spoken with a support nurse at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And they both told me that shame and self-blame are quite common with a cervical cancer diagnosis. Um, so I thought, you know, I, or it didn't occur to me that this would be a common feeling. And I felt very angry thinking about these other women who were told that they had cancer and then also felt bad about themselves. So there was the anger. Um, and then the second reason was that I realized that none of the people in my life, especially my friends, my age, they were you know, smart, progressive women, and none of them seemed to know very much about cervical cancer or HPV. Uh, so I thought that I, you know, the rest of Canada might be in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we vaccinate against um, uh, this virus um, in, in young girls, and it's most effective prior to somebody being sexually active. Um, what what do you hope from uh, to gain from other women experiencing what you are experiencing? If that, yeah, no. I mean, as you said, kids are vaccinated against it. Boys and girls, um, usually between grades four and grade seven, um, if their parents allow it. Um, so there were two reasons again why I wanted, or I was hoping that this article would help other people. Um, first, I don't think anyone should feel shame about a cancer diagnosis or cervical cancer diagnosis. Uh, mm-hmm. HPV is incredibly common. Like you said, you know, eight to 80 to 85% of females will contract it at some point, even if those, you know, most of those cases won't turn into cervical cancer. Um, so I don't want anyone to feel shame. Um, but this article isn't meant to just be for people that have cervical cancer. I really mm-hmm. wanted to educate men and women about sexual health and HPV and normalize this discussion because, you know, I think if this, if talking about STIs or, you know, pap tests is too inappropriate or risque to talk about, you know, at a family dinner, there will always be stigma or shame attached to it. So I really hope that people will share this article, you know, with their friends, partners, or their teenage kids and just increase, you know, the conversation around these topics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't talk about this, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk about it, but cervical cancer is the third most diagnosed cancer in women between the ages of 25 to 44. That is significant. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. we don't talk about that and we don't share that with other women and men and people and everybody, I mean, we're really doing society a tremendous disservice. And, you know, and, and it's a little bit of Russian roulette that, you know, People are sexually active. <laughs> that happens. Yeah. But, you know, some people clear the virus. Some women can clear the virus and, and others can't because mm-hmm. that virus is, um, you know, very sneaky and, and quite a tricky little virus, a very clever virus that infects tissues mm-hmm. like the epithelium of the cervix without coming in direct contact with the immune system. And that's one of the problems. Um, and not everybody develops an antibody response to an HPV infection. And people can be infected without developing 
any immune response and acquiring different types of the virus. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard to, you know, go up against something like that. Yeah, I mean, there are over 200 strains. You can be infected, you know, with different strains. You can be reinfected with the same strain even after you clear it. Um, so like you said, it is, it is a very unique virus. My guest is Andrea Kerr. We are talking about HPV uh, virus. Andrea, thanks so much for staying on the line. I just wanted to mention that I received a text from a listener asking, he said, did I hear you correctly, Maureen? Can HPV affect men? HPV certainly can affect men. The virus causes 90% of anal cancer, about 60% of uh, oropharyngeal cancers like throat cancer, base of tongue cancer, tonsil cancers, and also 50% of penile cancers, which are a bit more rare. But uh, Australia pretty much has eradicated HPV vaccine because they vaccinated both the uh, girls and the boys. How smart of them. Anyway, Andrea, thanks so much for staying on the line. My pleasure. I appreciate it. It's excellent information. It's a fabulous article. Um, you, you can go to chatelaine.com uh, slash health slash cervical cancer dash same dash HPV. Um, just chatelaine.com HPV, I'm sure. And Andrea Kerr. Um, so there's something in the article that you mentioned that you wish you had done. And, and tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about the Gardasil 9 vaccine. Yes. Um, I do wish that I had been vaccinated. Um, so when I was in elementary school, this was not a vaccine that was given, you know, as part of your curriculum. It is offered now, but um, it was not offered in school when I was a kid. Um, I was offered it when I was 28 by my family doctor. Um, and this was after I got out of an eight-year relationship, and she thought, you know, you might you know, be dating around, might be good to get the vaccine. I didn't, I mean, I, to my recollection, I thought HPV is common. It's not a big deal. It's a lot of money to get the vaccine, so why would I do it? And now I do regret that decision after you know, having had cervical cancer. Um, I do wish that I had gotten the vaccine when I had the chance. I have since had it. It was recommended to me, even though I have cervical or I've had cervical cancer, it was recommended to me by every doctor that I had. Um, and it is still, it's recommended for uh, girls and women ages nine to 45 um, by the Canadian Cancer Society. That's right. The only shame here is the shame that um, you, you weren't offered it, that it wasn't available to you as a child. And that, mm-hmm. and that perhaps it wasn't explained to you properly, you know, and, and it's difficult. I educate patients and I often think, you know, they're, it's me. I'm not g- delivering the information in the correct manner that they're understanding it. I have to say we have to take that on as, as healthcare providers because um, whether we're educating about hypertension or diabetes type 2 or, um, you know, the importance of that and, you know, in prevention of significant illness that will affect quality of life. Um, so I would not take that on, you know, as totally, you know, given the information you received, um, you made that decision. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I think I, that's, go ahead. Well, I don't think, you know, most of my friends at, at my age have had the vaccine. I mean, now I, you know, they get vaccinated, you know, but uh, I don't think a lot of people my age have it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I don't think we've done a great job eradicating this in Canada like other countries have done, uh, namely Australia. Um, and that's why I so appreciate you educating the listeners um, 
today on the show. I, I, I want to ask, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, I have had, you know, I was I was lucky that even though I didn't have the vaccine, we do, you know, free routine pap testing in Canada. Um, so whether you have a family doctor or you can get yourself to a sexual health clinic, you can get a pap test if you can get there. Um, I mean, that's not great for everyone. It can, the test itself can be a bit of a barrier, but it was caught early for me. Um, so I am very lucky that I didn't require chemo or radiation. Um, it was caught at a very early stage one. So I had two leaps, um, and that stands for loop electrosurgical excision procedure, where they, they use a heated looped wire to remove part of the cervix. So I had two of those. Um, and from what we can tell, that did remove all of the cancerous cells. Um, now I go back for a colposcopy where they look at the cervix, and I have a pap test, a biopsy every three months. Um, and my last one did have some mild abnormalities. So hopefully... Um, when I get, you know, we'll keep an eye on that. And, um, I'm lucky that I get to go every three months. Yes. Well, I, I certainly hope, um, all the best for you. Um, you definitely deserve, deserve it. Um, Canada, a lot of places in Canada, and you talked about barriers that the PAPS tests are a barrier to care. And this is a significant advancement in healthcare in Canada is that they're changing from, um, the PAPS smear pap test to hpv screening Mm -hmm. so and that won't be for you i imagine but for a lot of women um most women will be able to have hpv screening now instead of the pap smear so that's that is what the plan is going forward that is not actually a reality across all of canada right now um the only province i believe that currently has hpv testing is pei and it is launching in BC on January 29th, where you can actually mm-hmm. order a home test um, to test for HPV at home. So the HPV test is more sensitive um, and more accurate than a PAP test. Um, so if you do have a positive HPV result, then you go for more testing. It doesn't fully replace a PAP test. Um, it just means that someone that can't get to the doctor can more easily, hopefully, order this test um but it's not currently you can't do it in toronto or in New manitoba or whatever at this point i'm hoping they're going to be rolling that out in um other parts of canada um i know i i know that uh soon in british columbia and and pei mm-hmm. but certainly i would imagine that the entire country will eventually go this way it takes time yeah. and time takes time but um it's yeah. also a self-test um, which is also has also been a barrier for a lot of people, uh, a lot of women culturally, and um, you know having had a history of trauma and that type of thing. So that makes it easier, and it's every five years as opposed to every three years. So hopefully that will um, help help matters, um, and certainly voices like yours are definitely helping matters. Um, and and how do you feel now? I mean, I don't have have zero shame now. I I don't have any shame about this um, because I've been educated. If anything, I have anger, but I'm not ashamed. Um, And I, I hope that, you know, other women or other people that, you know, get any kind of diagnosis that's, you know, related to their sexual health, you know, feel comfortable, you know, talking about it and sharing their experiences so that other people know how normal this is. Um, to have HPV, to, you know, everyone's having sex, you know, we just don't talk about it. Exactly. Um, I'm getting lots of texts about how HPV wasn't discussed when I was in school and, um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, giving me uh, connections to other healthcare professionals. So thank you so much, Andrea. I really appreciate your time on this and uh, we're definitely going to get you back. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Did you know that breast cancer accounts for approximately 25% of new cases of cancer and 14% of all cancer deaths in Canadian women? One in eight women are expected to develop breast cancer during her lifetime and one in 34 will die of it. Men also can get breast cancer. Joining me on the line to talk about what is new and what is coming down the pipe the Pike is Kimberly Carson, CEO of Breast Cancer Canada, a national charity dedicated to saving lives through breast cancer research. Good evening, Kimberly. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. Such exciting well, advancements in breast cancer. So that's exciting awesome. to be here. Oh, that's awesome. That's so great to hear. Um, and in fact, 2023 was a, an important year for breast cancer in Canada. First of all, why don't we start there? Why don't you tell the listeners why that was? Yeah, you know, um, we at Breast Cancer Canada did a couple of things this year that are kind of pivotal and changing for the landscape. Number one, we did um, a survey that said that about 89% of all people in Canada believe that the age of mammogram screening should go from 50 to 40. And that in turn changed at least one province. And we're looking at other provinces now to change that to a lower age of 40. So that's exciting because we know for sure that the sooner we catch it, the better the curative rate. So very exciting news there. Breast Cancer Canada also invested a $3 million grant into what we are now calling preventative breast cancer. So can we figure out who's going to get breast cancer? And if we can, can we treat it before it happens? Really exciting changes in the industry. We're really excited about some of the things that are coming. That is incredible. And I'm sure uh, women who are listening out there who may have a history of breast cancer in their family or may have had a relative who has uh, endured it and lost their life to it. I'm sure they're um, very happy about that and very appreciative of all the work that Breast Cancer Canada does. You're, you're really the only organization in Canada that's laser focused on breast cancer research. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, everything we do, we do, we fund research. We have, uh, you know, projects like I just spoke about with the $3 million invest, investment into, you know, really groundbreaking changes. But I think the interesting thing that Breast Cancer Canada does is values the patient voice. So when we did a survey across Canada, ask why we're not hearing the results from patients themselves, everyone said we would love to hear that. We just don't have the time or the the money and et cetera to do that. So Breast Cancer Canada came forward and invested in that. And so we now have a patient-reported outcome study that we've launched, our progress tracker study, to learn from patients themselves what's going on with them, what changes in their lives, what can, what can we learn from those changes in their lives that we can change in the future. So it's really, really valuable information that we're gathering. And it's really just breast cancer patients sharing their story with us. You know, and that is so important. Yeah, that's so important. I've had women on the show, Julie Nolan, to name one, um, who a broadcaster who has shared her story um, along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, which, because I think when we hear, when people share their stories, they empower other people. And, the, and, and it's the real life. 
it's actually what is happening in their life and what they're experiencing and they can help somebody else. So people don't feel like they're alone on their island. Now, what are some of the breakthroughs that involve AI? Artificial intelligence is here to stay. It's It, it seems to be <laughs> penetrating every area of healthcare. I love it. I'm so happy. <laughs> it's, it's helped my world in a number of different ways, but that's another segment. Um, how has it leveraged some of the breakthroughs? You know, it's funny. We do um, a call for grants where we ask researchers across Canada to submit their grants to us that we're looking at funding. And one of the things that we do that's maybe a little bit different again than a lot of other people, we insist that there is a piece of AI in there so that we can use that best technology to get those best results as quickly as possible. So, for example... One of the things that we're looking at doing is, you know, adding all of those mammograms uh, into a national database, following them, seeing which patients developed breast cancer, which ones did not, and what could we have er learned from the AI much earlier on. So again, that, you know, the sooner we catch it, the earlier we detect it, the earlier we can screen for it, the better the results. So, you know, AI is going to make a big difference. Oh, and, and it's going to help to advance the research, I would imagine, as well, speed things up. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people are afraid of it. We need to learn how to work with it. Um, just a practical question here. So the screening age has gone from 50 to 40. How, how often should um, people be screened for breast cancer? You know, it's still, again, um, really up to your primary care um, provider to say what is best for you based on your family history, uh, your your biological makeup. Do you have dense breasts? Do you not? You know, all of those things are factors. So really your primary, your primary caregiver is the best person to help you with that. But certainly, you know, the guidelines are pretty much once a year. So. Mm -hmm. And an annual um, test, mm -hmm. unless it's, um, yeah, the dense breast is a big issue for a lot of women. Um, I think Absolutely. we need to maybe uh, make some advancements in that area or make more access um, for the particular types of uh, testing for women. And, what and do I we think have to AI is going to help with that. You know, I think that, AI is going to help with that, right? Yeah, with that's those true. mammograms yeah. and dance at breast yeah. and following women and saying, okay, which ones, you know, exactly. So again, right. I think we'll rely heavily on AI with that. So there's a lot of advancements being made, which is exciting. That is such a great point. And what do we have to look forward to in 2024? You know, I'm really excited about 2024. You know, one of the things we did as well is we asked Canadians, what would you do if you had a breast cancer diagnosis? And 98% of them came back and said, have no idea. Or, you know, we would look at search engines. So we launched a product called Connect. So you can go on our website, get get that free information, answer about 20 questions and get a high level of, you know, here's your timeline. Here's some of the things that you can do. Here's the questions you need to ask. But I think more importantly as well is we're looking at more precision oncology coming in 2024 and beyond. So precision oncology is really that personalized medicine. So with over 50 different types of breast cancer, with personalized medicine, we're going to look at your type of breast cancer, how it, how it manifests itself in you, and how do we treat it best for you. You know, there's, we're, we're looking at Breast Cancer Canada to make breast cancer a disease you live with, not something that's terminal. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think that personalized medicine is really going to make that big difference. 
Absolutely. And I, that's something that I learned. Um, I did not realize that there were 50 different types of cancer. I do want to mention your website because um, it's breastcancerprogress.ca. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> and so if you want to go on and donate <laughs> to breast cancer research, I recommend that you do. I'm actually seeing some of the donations and I'm hoping they're listeners <laughs> that are happening right now fantastic. from Calgary, Calgary and Vancouver. Um, so, but if you'd like to go, every little bit helps. Is that right? $5. I mean, it all adds up. Yes. And, Um, you know, donations are amazing. And, you know, Breast Cancer Canada believes that progress is beautiful. So we want to make that change. We want to make women feel beautiful. We want to change the outcomes of breast cancer. And their stories are so powerful. So we're encouraging people to get involved in Tracker because if you are in our research database and tracker, you're actually contributing to research no matter where you live in Canada. You don't have to be in a big center. You don't have to be in a big city. You can be in a small rural town. You can be in a big city. It doesn't matter. Your stories matters and it's very important and it helps us in the future. I mean, that is just fascinating and it's just incredible work um, that you're doing. Breastcancerprogress.ca. Um, what, what excites you the most here? Uh, and I know that, you know, we do pretty well in terms of, um, treatment of breast cancer in Canada. Um, but we can do better. We can always do better. Um, but what excites you the most? I think that what excites me the most is I think making breast cancer a disease that you live with. So like diabetes, you can live with diabetes. You can live with breast cancer. You can live your whole entire life with breast cancer. It's not it's not a terminal illness anymore. And I can see that. I can see that in our future. And I see it coming very quickly and very soon. And then the other thing that excites me is can we detect it before it happens? Fabulous insight, right? Fabulous insight. Absolutely. And do you think people would want to know that information? Uh, I mean, oftentimes, you know, with, uh, and I don't know if it's genetic testing that you're referring to, but oftentimes if there's a particular disease like Huntington's chorea or Alzheimer's, you know, and people have the opportunity to know, is this something that we'll want to know? Well, and you know, the thing is, is the, the sooner and the more we know, the better the outcome. So I would encourage people, and now we're not there yet, right? It, it's not a test that we've got yet. So that's why we're investing in that research because it's not just genetics. It's not just the genetic makeup. It's all other factors that, that you know, our researchers are trying to figure out what happens, what makes you get breast cancer, even if you're not genetically exposed to it. So, you know, I think there's a great opportunity there. We don't have it unlocked yet, but if you can imagine we unlock it, where we would go with that. And then mm-hmm. perhaps it's just a simple treatment before it even manifests itself. I would mm-hmm. think you would want to know because it would be a less invasive treatment. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but some people are so fearful of getting tests done and, um, you know, getting the diagnosis. I hear that commonly from people. Something I just wanted to mention about um, breast cancer in general, and I don't know if um, you can answer this, but the research on alcohol and um, breast cancer. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty clear that it's a contributing um, factor. Oftentimes I hear patients who've been diagnosed with breast cancer will come back to the clinic and say, you know, that I'm off alcohol. They've told me not to drink alcohol anymore. I didn't know that there was an association. 
Yeah, it's a low-level carcinogenic. Um, there's there's uh, research out there on the on uh, alcohol intake, and again, I'm going to encourage people to live a healthy lifestyle. Everything that you can do to be healthy, which in, includes a, like a lower alcohol uh, consumption, but you know that healthy, be proactive on your own health, eat healthy, keep a healthy weight, you know, physical exercise, water. And, you know, alcohol consumption that meets guidelines. Uh-huh. It is a lower, it is a lower carcinogenic for, uh, for um, cancer. But again, it, it's the contributing factor to a number of things. Our molecular system is, you know, complex. Absolutely. And there's a number of um, contributing factors. But hopefully it's 2024 that you find out who will get breast cancer so we can stop it at the pass. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Kimberly. Kimberly Carson, CEO of Breast Cancer Canada. The website again, Kimberly, is? Breastcancerprogress.ca. Thank you so much. Great information and good luck in 2024. We'll check back in with you and see how your progress has been. I'm happy to, I'm happy to share. Very excited about 2024. Thank you for having me. But right now I was um, so sort of surprised and happy to see this study that came out. And we're going to be talking about it with the go-to MD coach who empowers executives, leaders, physicians, lawyers, and other professionals to reduce burnout, to increase productivity in the workplace and their personal lives. You've heard her voice before a number of times. She's Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Marie. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? And I probably never say this, but you're joining us the show from Calgary, correct? I am. Wonderful. So all the Calgarians out there, a fond hello. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in. I've had a few text messages um, from Calgary tonight. And I also noticed that a few people from Calgary donated to breastcancerprogress.ca, which was so nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, let's see, I sent you this particular study. Uh, You know, a lot of people are concerned about their memory and, you know, people start to worry about it if they lose their keys or they lose their wallet or they're multitasking, overwhelmed, kids, jobs, lives, life in general. Um, and, you know, this is a concern, especially because of dementia and the risk of dementia. But memory is, you know, people get nervous if they um, start to forget things, especially if they start to forget things more frequently. In fact, I was like tonight when I was getting ready for the show, I'm like, Oh, yeah. What else are we talking about with Dr. Mitchell (laughs) after the memory study? And then I'm like, I don't remember. (laughs) I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have to worry. Maybe I should go and take one of these. You're just getting in the role. I'm ready. I'm like, oh, my gosh, loser. Um, So let's talk a little bit about a simple thing that that people can do uh, to improve their memory. Yes, I, I appreciate the study info you sent. Um, there's some studies that show potentially multivitamins have a modest effect on preventing memory loss in older adults. And that's a pretty bold statement. Um, mm-hmm. Very bold. So, you know, the study was done by the makers of what, our favorite brand, Centrum Silver. Um <laughs> <laughs> right. It was only Centrum Silver. So right? regardless, so, 
Does that no mean bias. regardless of how old you are? Because Centrum Silver is for a certain age, isn't it? Yes, for having a baby. It's 50 and, and above. Oh, 50 so, and above? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and how do they know that? Also, I want to, I, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm a big skeptic in terms of supplements and vitamins. You know, I really feel like you can get them except for vitamin D, yeah. um, you know, calcium perhaps for some people. Um, but I feel like you can get it from your food. You can get vitamins. 100%. From a, I, the vitamin yeah. industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and those people take it and they're getting very minimum benefits. It's more than just a vitamin. Put it that way. It's vitamin is just a small part of healthy living, and you know there's evidence of vitamin D without a doubt. Like that is huge. To, you know, um, in some cases, B supplementation. Some yeah, like B12 right? helps B12. helps people to absorb food better because as people age, they don't absorb the nutrients as well as mm-hmm. they did when they were younger. Exactly. And your, and your B-complex vitamins are amazing. There's, there's definitely evidence for that for um, hormonal regulation, PMS symptoms, insulin control. Like there's really good evidence. Um, I always say worst case scenario with your vitamins, you may just have expensive urine. Like that's just really what it is, right? So Exactly. And so what was it? What? How did they conclude that... Um, the daily multivitamin supplementation compared with placebo. Um, this was actually a fairly large study, though, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, 573 adults over two years, they evaluated the cognitive function with eh. a battery test at the beginning and at the end. Not so and... robust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there could have been other factors as well, you know, that did they control for exercise okay. and sleep. One of the listeners texted yeah. in, Derek from Edmonton, texted in that um, if we want to improve our overall cognitive function, including memory, then we need to do those things that produce quality sleep on a regular basis. How important is sleep, Dr. Mitchell? Profound. Pro- profound. Um, sleep is restorative. That's where your brain gets rest and heals. So it's important. And then another thing that's not mentioned is Blood pressure, we do know that controlling that systolic blood pressure, keeping it below 120 early on in life from like your, you know, your 20s and 30s and 40s has a direct relation to the risk of developing dementia. So I think yes, that should be talked about more because so many people are walking around with blood pressures in the 130s and thinking it's perfectly fine. Your brain I know. doesn't like it. And no, a lot of care providers feel it's normal. Like, oh, it's normal. I'm like, no, it's not. Not for your brain. Not for so many things over a long time. A kid- kidney is- function is, exactly. as well. Yeah, it cuts off blood supply to kidney function. It, it'll impact your sexual health. It'll yes, impact. Yes, thank you. It will cut supply um, to that too. Eventually. Uh, the blood Everything. supply to your penis. So it yes, affects erections. Vagina, all the above. So exactly. Your blood pressure is more powerful than taking a multivitamin, like controlling that blood pressure, not smoking, you know, you know, that's huge. Absolutely. It's never, it's never one thing. Oh no, no, it's a, it's really important. And I see this all the time in my clinical practice um, because we take blood pressures and I try to educate people about the importance of keeping their blood pressure, you know, below at least try to get them to below 130 and then to get them below 120. Yeah. Yeah. Yes because it does impact so much. But, you know, I see these people, they're like mid forties and they have high hypertension. They, you know, are pre-diabetic or, you know, 
diabetic, diabetes type two, and they're, they, it's very difficult for them to make any changes to, to understand. They think that will never happen to me. I know, but it does happen and it happens. I'm seeing it earlier and earlier in age. It's not a, a disease of an older adult. It's, I, it's a disease in the twenties. Yes, absolutely. I see so many young patients, um, with suffering with, um, hypertension. They don't even realize the impact that it's having on And then management of stress, like this reaction, there's no response. They react in their lives. Cause of course I'm talking with them about their relationships, um, their intimate relationships and the things, the resentments that they have and the issues that they have. And, and oftentimes one partner will say the other one loses their cool over nothing. And that, that's really damaging, not only to your blood vessels, but to your relationship. Exactly. Being reactive, pausing and thinking and not having a trigger response and really figuring out where that trigger came from. Again, it goes back to early childhood, but it, it, it's dealing with things holistically from the root. So, you know, vitamins, great, but it doesn't, it doesn't come anywhere near to, you can't compare it to healthy lifestyle, to having a healthy um, diet, eating a rainbow, like eat a rainbow. There should be exactly. green things on your plate, orange, yellow, brown, like eat a rainbow. My guest is the go-to MD coach, Dr. Tommy Mitchell. And we're talking, well, we were talking about multivitamins. Dr. Mitchell, thanks for staying on the line. I just wanted to mention uh, that Bill texted in. It's the Ozempic effect, Maureen. People think that those supplements and what not are a miracle cure for what ails them, but they don't think of the side effects. I just wanted to mention the, um, the Ozempic effect. I don't know if you're, what you're seeing in your clinical practice, but I'm seeing a lot of people who started taking Ozempic maybe six, eight, 10 months ago, who also changed their diet, increased their exercise, and they have dropped 30, 40 pounds. More importantly, their blood sugar level, their HDA1C levels are down, their blood pressures are down, their lipids are down all normalized. What are you saying, Dr. Mitchell? You know, for some people, this is nothing short of a miracle, especially if they continue with the lifestyle changes that mm-hmm. they're motivated to do now that they have results. Um, and there are also people who have metabolic hormone issues that's made it challenging to lose weight. And it's opened the discussions for them to be more comfortable in talking about those things. But again, it doesn't substitute a bad lifestyle. If you want to do Exempic and chug beers and be a couch potato and put the outcome on everyone else but you, then that, that's a problem, right? Exactly. Um, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. But yes, I've seen Ozempic make make amazing difference in people's life. Now, how are they going to sustain it long-term? That's the story we'll figure out, but... Yeah, I have some patients who are actually um, thinking of reducing the dosage, sticking with the lifestyle changes that they've made, you know, they've been on it for 10 months and, um, you know, hoping to maintain it that way, maintain things that way. We'll see. Yeah. Only time, only time will only tell. Only time will tell. And then we yeah. until you get that sweet spot where you can maybe, maybe on the dose once a month, who knows, and you're doing everything else right and you're happy. That's great. But I mean, exactly. working with the provider and making those healthy choices, that's so important. Exactly. So we don't have a, too much time here, so we'll probably have to redo this at another time. But caregiver stress, um, yeah. it's a huge issue. So many women, 54% of caregivers are women in this country. That's, 
Yes. I mean, and, and they're unpaid. And so they're doing it on top of their other work as well. And men are also caregivers, but not at the same rates that women are. What are some of the signs of caregiver stress? Oh, frustration and feeling withdrawn, depression, increased memory problems, as we were talking about earlier, poor concentration. Yeah. And just not feeling like themselves, being withdrawn, getting yeah, angry at the person that they're looking after. That can be a sign of stress. That certainly can be. Um, it's, it's, and it's so important that people recognize the warning signs of, of stress. Like, you know, as you mentioned, anger, withdrawing socially, you know, I, I hear people, my patients will say, you know, we used to get invited to dinners with friends and we no longer get those invitations because my wife has, uh, dementia and I'm, I'm caring for her, um, exhaustion, sleeplessness, you know, and, and yeah. people getting, you know, having emotional reactions, crying at minor upsets, you know, and often feeling irritable. If you're a caregiver and you're experiencing this, you know, it, it's important to reach out and get some help and have um, a, a support network for you as well. I, I always remember this lovely patient that I had who was caregiving for her husband and, and then she ended up having a stroke and, you know, I'm sure mm. it was, she wasn't paying attention to her, her yeah. health. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's so many different reasons people become caregivers, um, especially as people age, but, but they're also caregivers for children as well. So it's just so important to get that help. And maybe we're out of time now, Dr. Mitchell, but maybe we'll address ways to reduce caregiver stress in, a, in an upcoming segment. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much for joining the show tonight. I really appreciate My it. Pleasure. We're talking about finances, be, being financially fit, very important, never too late, never too late to make some changes in your life, never too late to track your spending and never too late to contribute to savings or start investing uh, in money or to contribute more to um, investing. But, but here are some five tips that I have for you. I'm going to go through these quickly. Know where your money is going. That is the most important step of any successful financial plan. So every day, you know, do I need this or do I want this? Is this a shiny object? Can I live without this? Know what you're spending your money on as much as gum or lunches. I had a patient in my clinical practice who was spending $200 a month just to work, just to commute and go to work um, and eat. And it wasn't healthy, let me tell you. Um, so know where your money's going. Financially, educate yourself. We don't do this, but everyone needs to know how to manage their money. But, you know, most often people need to learn the hard way. And so, you know, it's, we, we don't educate kids in high school about this. Fortunately, I was raised by an accountant. So, but I still have made mistakes, let me tell you. Um, you know, and I have more than my share of shiny objects. <laughs> but, um, it's important that you educate yourself because what you don't spend, you can invest and you can make more money, or you can just even put it into a savings account or TFSA or whatever, pay down your debt. Because once you know where your money is going, your next step should be to aggressively pay down debt. Debt weighs you down and does not provide an ongoing benefit. And it's a good idea to get educated about, um, credit cards. Like it's amazing the psychology behind credit cards and how much is in the fine print and penalties. Even if you do a balance transfer to a zero 
5% credit card. I mean, really, it's, you know, um, you need a PhD to read some of the fine print in some of this. Also have multiple sources of income. And, and just because you've retired doesn't mean that you can't continue to work. There's a lot of people who do double dipping. They collect a pension and then they start another little business, maybe something that they've been passionate about. Dog walking. I think that's a great business because it keeps you active. You're out there. I mean, who doesn't love dogs? And, you know, you're outdoors, you're walking, you're getting the exercises. It's great money. Um, and then also in, just increase the percentage you pay into anything, whether it's a company sponsored retirement plan or whether it's a savings account or whether it's an RRSP or whatever, just continue to increase because this has double benefits. You're building, adding to or building your retirement nest egg and you're reducing your spending. So you will not need to save as much in total. You know, it's a good idea to commit a percentage of, of an amount, say 10% of all of the gift checks I get, or, you know, every paycheck that I get, or in, you know, retirement income, whatever it is, take 10% and put that away. Just five little strategies that will help you, um, have be healthier, but you can't be healthy financially if you're not healthy physically and, and emotionally. And so just a few tips for, as we head into 2024, um, exercise, this might seem obvious, but you know what? Schedule your exercise. Okay. It's, and just do it daily. Maybe do it at the same time every day, 30 minutes a day. That is, that will help to lower your blood pressure, help you sleep better, keep your waistline down. There are so many benefits. Drink water regularly. I know that a lot of people, as they advance in age, they have urinary incontinence and they cut back on their water intake. That is counterintuitive to increase water. However, concentrated urine is more irritating to the bladder than dilute urine. And men and women both leak urine. And Kegels don't work all the time. And there's a million other treatments for urinary incontinence. So go and get the help that you need, especially if you're in diapers, because diapers cost a lot of money and that's going to be a big savings for you. So does the laundry that you're doing all the time as well. Um, what other tips have I got for you? If you're sitting at home and you're sedentary, you're working from home. A lot of people are stand up every 30 minutes while working. It's so easy to forget to take breaks, but it's good for your mental health and it is good for your physical health. You know, take an exercise snack of walking maybe for five minutes every half hour that has health benefits. According to research done at Columbia university who studied the health impacts of sitting for long periods of time. You sit for long periods of time, your waistline gets bigger. Get outside, get enough sleep. I'm really being, um, <laughs> I'm really being a bit of a Karen right now. Um, you know, you know, some people might say to choose organic foods, but I will never tell you to do that <laughs> because you can't even trust that they're organic foods. If chickens walk, you know, a foot outside, it's considered organic. So I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. You know, maybe in 2024 to help with emotional health, practice gratitude journaling. It can be an instant mind booster when you take the time to give thanks. Um, commit to reading some more books in uh, 2024. But if you can't do that, I understand, but please eat more fruits and vegetables. People struggle to get enough fruits and vegetables in their daily meals. I will tell you, do not um, take those vegetables, vitamins, whatever they are. <laughs> they kill me. They're, that is hilarious. Vegetables serve more purpose than just 
um, getting it inside of you. Um, you know, cause they, they're actually probiotics. They actually help you to become regular. Thanks for listening to the Sunday night health show podcast. You can subscribe rate or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me nurse talk at hotmail.com. And I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show for now, have a happy and healthy week.